This is Gabriel Carrillo from the EdTech Bytes Podcast, a proud member of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you are listening to right now. The opinions expressed are those of each individual host. Make sure you check out all the other great podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. And get ready, because the learning begins in 3, 2, 1. Coming up on episode 38 of Podcast PD, Chris and AJ are going to talk about a thematic approach to teaching social studies. We've got some great podcast recommendations and feedback from you, our great listeners. This is Podcast PD, the show that provides you with anytime, anywhere professional development. Our conversations and guests will provide you with the learning you might get in a faculty meeting or on a PD day. Except you'll have more fun with Stacey Lindis, AJ Bianco, and me, Chris Nessie. Welcome to episode 38 of Podcast PD. I'm so happy to be back with my co-hosts, Chris Nessie and AJ Bianco. I'm Stacey Lindis. I'm at Tech on Twitter and the Instagram. And we are going to talk about thematic units and social studies. Chris and AJ, how are you tonight? I'm doing well, Stacey. This is, of course, Chris Nessie at Mr. Nessie on Twitter, also host of the House of EdTech podcast. Happy to be here for another podcast PD conversation. AJ, what's going on, my northern brother? What's going on out there, Podcast PD? Chris, Stacy, great talking to you guys again. Uh, things are going very well on this end of the universe. Uh, another Sunday that we were recording and another Jets victory. So I'll celebrate that one. Just for, for the record, we are 3-3, three and three, which is 500 for those of you who don't know sports, which makes me happy. So it's a great Sunday. What's everyone been up to this week besides a Jets victory? I've been wallowing in the Yankee loss earlier in the week, so... I didn't want to bring that up. That's why I focus on the Jets. I can't even focus on the Giants, but... <laughs> no, it's been a great weekend here. I uh, got to spend a lot of time with the, the boys and my wife, and we uh, got to actually just relax. We didn't have much to do because the weather was kind of crummy on Saturday, so our soccer was canceled. So it was just a lot of playtime with the Bianco household. Uh, for me, recently, uh, Kate and I dumped our children off with my parents, <laughs> and we uh, we headed to North Jersey to the Gluten-Free Expo at the Meadowlands Exposition Center. So that was a, a little outing that Kate planned, so we got to basically go sample a whole lot of food that she can eat because she is gluten-free. So it, it was a fun day. You are the third person who went to that expo that I saw. But I'll be the first person to tell you that I went to Red Robin when I was done. <laughs> Probably the first person. I heard that there was a lot of food sampling and people left with very full bellies. Very full bellies. And we were also the only ones who podcasted from the event because I brought the, uh, what is it, the, the Zoom H6. So we had the microphones, we sat at the table, and we did an episode of her podcast, the Lifelong Learning Podcast, that'll come out sometime after this one. So if you're not subscribed, head over to katenessie.com. But uh, we had a nice little conversation from the Gluten Free Expo. It was really fun. The family that podcasts together. Yeah, I just listened to Chris's. Um, I'm a little behind on House of Tech. I listened to Chris's episode with Miles. It was super cute. <laughs> I'll be sure to let him know. Yesterday, instead of going to the Ed Camp that I had registered for, um, I ditched it. But it was a good thing because my sixth grader scored his first goal ever in soccer. Oh, and, yeah. Um, yeah, I got to be there for it. He had four oh. attempts on goal. It was amazing. It was amazing. Four attempts on goal, and he got one in on, on his fourth try. So usually he's like one of those kids who like kicks and dumps the ball immediately. So Today he was feeling like a ball hog, and he shot it four times. Good for him. It was it was just really good. He got so much encouragement from his teammates. Um so it was also my birthday this weekend, and that was like like the icing on the cake for like. Happy birthday to you! Thank you. It's good to be thirty. Yeah, you know, several times over. I wasn't going to say anything. I just went with thirty. Yeah. Yep. 30. Good, it, it's good to be thirty. Stacy, the youngest member of the trio. No, I'm the oldest. Bringing up the but... rear at nineteen. <laughs> right. I'm nineteen. No. Um. 
in a couple episodes will be my current age. So we'll get there. What episode are we um, on? Oh, a hundred. I only laughed because I just edited episode 62 of the, no, 61 of the Google teacher drive. So I'm like, wait, no, you can't. <laughs> I'm not that old. If no, I were, I'd look damn good. <laughs> I'm 87. Anyway, so tonight I am going to pretty much be interviewing you guys um, about all things social studies and thematic teaching and learning in social studies. So do we want to get started with that? Let's rock and roll. All right. So my first question really is like, what is thematic teaching, especially as it applies to social studies? Well, since I'm the one who is actively doing this. I'll give my thoughts as somebody who planned this and did this last year and is still actively doing it this year while also mentoring the student teacher. Remember Luke? Yeah, he's still around (laughs) and uh, he's also interested in this. So this is just my opinion on what thematic instruction looks like and how I've adapted it in my classroom rather than, and I'm going to apply this to social studies rather than just follow a timeline for my curriculum. And I'm speaking specifically to, you know, high school world history here in the state of New Jersey, rather than just follow a timeline as laid out by the curriculum guide, I decided last year to implement thematic instruction, which I basically modeled and taught using the 10 themes of social studies, which you can find from the National Council of Social Studies, which I believe is NCSS.org. If you just Google 10 themes of social studies you will find these and we'll put a link to them in the show notes for this episode, of course. So I coupled that idea of these basic themes of social studies that can be applied, again, in my opinion, to any social studies topic, whether it's world history, US one, US two, economics, or even through any social studies electives that you might encounter at the middle and high school level. I applied these 10 themes and I basically not teaching the timeline taught the ideas of these themes. So, for example, there is a theme on culture, which you can infuse culture into anything in a social studies classroom because there are seven basic elements of culture that you have to have in order to have culture. Um, But to get back to the thematic aspect of it, I just laid out one theme per month. So 10 themes, 10 months. And the other thing that I put in with that was also making my class project-based. So no traditional old-school tests, quizzes, multiple-choice, essay, things like that. It was all based on creating projects where the students were asked to basically demonstrate their understanding of these themes. Now, because I think that the themes can be applied to any social studies content area, this the these projects were skills-based. So... I did not care whether or not my students knew the content. That wasn't what I was looking to have them do. And as I told them and still tell them, I'm not trying to prepare you to play Jeopardy. So it's not about names and dates and facts and, you know, things like that. It's about using these different historical time periods and events, large and small, to teach them the themes of social studies. Again, for example, you know, government, economics, uh, culture, how to better learn who they are. So like the self and how they also fit into these groups and institutions that exist in the world. So that's kind of where I'm coming from. So that's a lot to bite off. Please fire away with your questions and where we can go from here. But that's what it looks like and how I've sort of built it up in my mind and put it into practice. Okay, so I'm looking at the 10 themes and um, because I think it would be helpful to the listener to kind of understand what they are. It's certainly helpful to me. Um, I have included the link to the National Curriculum Standards for Social Studies. So the 10 themes are number one, culture. Number two, time, continuity, and change. Number three, people, places, and environments. Number four is individual development and identity. Number five, individuals, groups, and institutions, institutions struggling today. 
Number six, power, authority, and governance. Number seven, production, distribution, and consumption. Number eight is science, technology, and society. Number nine, global connections. And number 10, civic ideals and practices. So you said, Chris, you start with culture. Well, we started with, we started with culture this year. Last year when I did this, where it was just me and my in-class support teacher, we looked at the 10 themes at the end of August, the, the guy who I know I'd be teaching with, and we arranged them, and he helped me do this, to arrange them sort of to fit the curriculum, but still it was a lot of me saying, here's where I think we should go based on you know, the start of a school year, where we are in the middle of the school year, and I looked at where the end of the school year is and where they're supposed to go as sophomores. So this is really custom towards freshman world history the way I've done it. I would probably do it differently if I was teaching US one or US two. So I'm really speaking. Yeah, that makes sense. So you started with what last year? We started with time, continuity, and change. And this year you started with culture. This year we started with culture. Give me me an idea of like what September looked like last year and how it compared to what September looked like this year. So last year, the reason that I started with time, continuity, and change was just to kind of get them in the mindset because September is, is relatively short in terms of, you know, I think it's like two and a half weeks worth of school when we start. So as a way to get them back into the flow, welcome them into high school, going with that unit just kind of preps them on how do we study and look at history. So I was able to include the idea of what this theme is, which is, you know, over time, there are things that stay the same and there are things that change. Now, I know that sounds silly to say out loud, but that's really, if you look at the global scope of history, that that's what it is. You know, over, you know, thousands of years, there are things that have stayed the same and there are things that have changed over time. So it's, as I took it, how do we study history? How can we examine history and, and kind of go through the year? This year, we started with culture because that's where Luke wanted to start and the approach is if we start with culture in September, we can now infuse culture continuously throughout the year. So maybe culture is the overarching theme of the entire year. As we then get into these other things, we can always refer back to the elements of culture that exist. So I could even see myself next year also starting with culture. Cool. So, AJ, do you have questions? Because I know part of the reason we're having this discussion is to see if um, thematic teaching and social studies would fit in your... Oh, no, it's something I'm going to do this year. No, it's no? something I'm going to do. I'm doing this this year. You are doing it this year. I gonna, yeah. I feel like I'm... Yeah. All yeah. right. So what does it look like in your room? It doesn't look like anything yet. <laughs> Just so the listener knows, this is a conversation that we're finally recording and sharing but it's a conversation that AJ and I have had dating back to last year throughout the year when I said, Hey, this is what I'm going to do. And so, so we've had conversations. We just want to try and put pen to paper, but audio to the microphone, mouth to mic. And I'm not part of any of those conversations because even though I started as a history major, I quickly left that content area in college. No, no. For for me, to be honest with you, just put it out there for me, as I mentioned before, my SDGP, my uh, self-developed growth plan for my school, my action research that I do as part of our evaluation, uh, I needed something where I was going to be able to uh, get the students engaged and involved in the in the learning. And I'm trying to shift away from too much technology. You know, last year, uh, the year before, I did um, digital tools and formative assessment in a flipped classroom. Last year, I did uh, personalized learning. So this year I want to do something else. I, I mean, I'm going to continue with those two themes of flip learning and personalized learning, but I wanted to look at something that was going to be better for my students learning. And when Chris had mentioned that he was using thematic teaching, I thought it was something that would be ideal for me because for middle school kids who look at social studies in a chronological order as just topic, 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 that it doesn't really relate to them. You know, we can only learn so much about the civil war And then all of a sudden we're gone and we're moving on to something new. So listening to Chris talk about thematic teaching and bringing it to his classroom, I like the idea that there's so many different ideas that can be shared throughout social studies. 
and we can continuously hit on them with the same topic, but learning different aspects of that topic. So one of the things that stand out to me is like, okay, so we'll learn about, uh, we'll learn about the civil war. I'm going to stick with that for a second. And then we're going to start looking at all these different aspects of the civil war that I don't have to do over a one month time. You know, I can talk about the people. I can talk about the events. I can talk about science and technology. I can talk about the cultures that were involved in the civil war. So I'm covering more throughout one year than I am in one month of teaching the civil war. So looking at this, I really thought it would benefit my students, especially those who really don't have an interest in learning social studies. This might bring something to life to them. So that's why I jumped on this. And I'm really hoping to uh, use the thematic teaching and problem and project-based learning in my classroom this year to really get my students excited. And honestly, for a little selfish reason, to have a successful uh, evaluation in my SDGP. I don't think that's selfish at all, but I totally get it. So you're doing it this year, right? For the first time. Yeah, it'll be my, it'll be my first time. I've, I've kind of stepped in the uh, chronological teaching of history and I've been focused on these are the years. This is the events that took place. These are the presidents that we learned about. So I haven't started yet. You know, talking to Chris, he said I wasn't ready, which I didn't realize how much planning actually has to go into it. But, you know, we have been discussing at least how to get the idea of using essential questions as a focus for my students instead of just going out there and starting with one topic. So I will probably prep my students with essential questions and problem and project-based learning and then uh, what do you say, Chris, like January in the new year, really get the ball rolling with a, a, a solid five months of thematic teaching and, and big units? Yeah, I, I would say that would be the best bet since you didn't start the year with it to come out of the holiday break with it. That would be the best way to do it because you would get to now kind of be planning behind the scenes. Even though someone hasn't started their year with the thematic units, they can certainly do some research look at their own curriculum, the content that they need to cover. And it's so funny because I always feel like the social studies and history teachers that I talk to always talk about where they are in history. Like, where are you at? Are you at the civil war? Oh no, we're, you know, we're, we're just, you know, wherever, you know, or they'll say like, I barely get to the revolution. And, you know, like, it's just kind of interesting that it is always focused on that timeline. I heard a quote recently and I'm trying to find where I heard it. Um, but um, the quote was that history is, history is a circle, not a timeline. And I think that this kind of like, if I'm liking it to likening it to some of the things that I know about, um, like just teaching in general, like it just reminds me a lot of having a, um, a spiral math program where you constantly come back to the different ideas. And I kind of feel like through theming, you would be able to hit on, you know, the civil war, more than once in a year because you're looking at it through different lenses. Is that, does that seem accurate or am I oversimplifying? I, I like how you're saying it. I, I disagree with what you said. History, I think his, history happens linearly. Like that's how time works, but to teach it, I like how you say and, and made that comparison to spiraling and kind of cycling around and coming back and hitting things repeatedly, which again, in the old way of, and I don't even know it's the old way, but traditional way that you teach social studies, again, AJ has experienced this and I've done it because I've worked in middle school, you know, seventh or eighth grade is going to be world history and US one related content. And then when you get to high school, you get world history and then US one and US two. So you, you continuously over your K-12 education, you will come back and you will hit these topics over and over again. It's just that now I'm applying this concept of spiraling to one year's worth of content. You know, so like AJ said, you know, we'll take the civil war as an example, maybe at the end of the eighth grade curriculum in his building or other places, maybe you get to touch on it a little bit and you never get to do as much with it as you might want to as a social studies teacher. But if you do thematically, you can hit on the, the civil war every month from a different perspective. And you can hit those big events in us history that are in your curriculum. But then what you're doing is you're able to, and this is where I think the real benefit of themes is you're not teaching history in isolation. And I think that's one of the most challenging things to do when teaching history is to show kids and have kids understand that, 
okay, while this was happening in 1865, there was also some of these other events also happening in, in the 1860s rather than just teaching these events in isolation. You know, it's not like with math where if I want to teach you how to do a quadratic equation and how to, you know, factor it or whatever they're going to do in math, you know, I teach that in isolation. I teach you that skill. We move on and we build on it. But what's lost in social studies is history doesn't happen in isolation. You know, there are many events that happen every single day. Um, I do like that people will be able to just connect the different events. And like I said, look through it. If I'm saying this accurately through like different lenses um, continuously throughout the year. Definitely. Like as, as I explained it to my student teacher who it's funny when Luke talked about, you know, being interested in doing this, he, he said, and I'm going to paraphrase him, you know, teaching social studies thematically is something I've only, we've only talked about in my classes, like as something like I've never done it or seen it. So I'm like, all right, well, here you go. Try it. Go ahead. See what happens. All right. So let me ask you this question. You said that um, like AJ should do some background work. What is the background work that would be required for someone who wanted to try this this school year? But if AJ is waiting until January, I mean, he's got several months to kind of like roll back, look at things, kind of plan how the themes are going to fit with the content he has to cover for for that timeline, right? Um, like, what's the first step? The Besides first, knowing the 10 themes. It, well, well, that that is step one, is to have an understanding, at least in social studies, what these themes are. If you want to apply thematic teaching to other content areas, obviously then maybe you're looking at some bigger picture stuff where maybe you teach a theme per marking period and everything relates to the content you're teaching. I mean, there's no, you know, 10 themes of Algebra 1. You know, there are the concepts and the content of Algebra 1. So this is me just trying to not lose those of our listeners who don't teach social studies that, you know, maybe in elementary school, it's, you know, we pick a theme for the marking period, such as, you know, honesty or kindness. And we have these types of themes that all of our lessons kind of tie in where we pull in all the content areas. So you're really writing something that's cross-curricular and thematic, but that's that's a whole other episode of how to write curriculum, which I'd be happy to talk about at a later date. Um, but the planning that goes into this for social studies really starts with looking at the themes and where do I want my students to go? So when I plan this out, I was looking at the different points of the school year. So when I chose time continuity and change, like I said before, I felt that that fit in with the beginning of the school year for incoming freshmen coming into ninth grade, you know, the fact that I could relate it to their life in that, Hey, you've been going to school for eight years. Now we're starting our ninth year, but here high school is a little bit different. You're still going to school. So there is some continuity and change that goes along with that. And now I'll skip all the way to the end of the year where I chose the theme of power, authority, and governance. Now that theme talks all about and gets into how government works. And the reason I made that the theme we hit on at the end of May and into June was because the freshmen in my school and most schools in New Jersey, you go from world history as a freshman to us one as a sophomore, which is all about the U S government and foundations of government and how that all operates. That's what you do for the full year. Uh, at least that's what I think the, the big picture is. So in my mind, finishing that with that theme allowed me to even preview and talk about some of those us one concepts. And rather than make it, you know, Eurocentric, which is most of world history, to at the end of the year, start to really talk about U.S. history and the foundations of government. In the middle of the year, then we were looking at individual development and identity. That's the theme we did in January, coming into the new year, a new calendar year. Uh, that really is a theme where we had the kids look internally to themselves and how, how do I, as a 14 or 15-year-old, fit into the world around me? You know, some of the research that they did was, well, what was life like for a 14 or 15 year old at these other points in world history, you know, during the Renaissance, during the Enlightenment, during the Industrial Revolution? What was it like for somebody my age at different points in history? What would my life be like if I was at those different points in history? Whereas before that in December, just to again, this is what history is. I'm jumping all over the timeline, <laughs> even in the last year, you know, we looked at individuals, groups, and institutions. So that was how, and that theme's all about, you know, 
how these things that have stayed the same over time, like marriage, government, the idea of an economy, uh, language and culture, those are things that stay the same throughout history, but they change depending on who the people are. But those ideas are fundamental. So that's looking at, well, how do we as people shape those institutions over time? So that again, allowed me and them to look at different points in history, to look at marriage and government economics and again, pulling things that we had talked about previously and where we were going to go. So the planning that goes into that is just coming up with a roadmap that you can stick to. So my advice for AJ starting in January was take a look at those five and a half months you have left in the school year. And then, so you, he's, he wouldn't hit on all 10, but he's going to pick the five and a half that he wants to then use throughout the rest of the school year that he finds value in. And that's strictly subjective. You know, I, I we could get 10 different social studies teachers and put them in the same scenario and get maybe four or five different ways and different themes that they would pick and then what order they would do them in. You know, so it's it, it's really up to somebody like AJ to make those decisions. I just recommended January to give him time to plan and consider projects, assignments, and what experience he wants to foster for his students. Yeah, I think even, even talking to you, Chris, I mean, we weren't on the same page with a lot of the themes that we decided that we'd roll with. You know, I, I didn't think I was going to go with, um, I, 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 we were talking about one of them, I just remember what it was right now, but I didn't want to go that way because I didn't think that was very important for a middle school kid who in my district, when they leave eighth grade and they go to the high school, they start U.S. history all over again. So they do ninth and 10th grade, U.S. 1, U.S. 2. So they are learning this stuff with me in seventh and eighth grade, then repeating it again in ninth and 10th grade, and then going to world for their junior year which is a little off for me. I don't understand it, but that's why I look at my course as like a survey course. We're just going to touch on these big ideas. And that's why I thought it was even better for my students to roll with thematic units because there's so many ideas that I can touch on and I can do it quickly and I can get through a lot of the topic and I can allow for the projects and problem-based ideas. And, I, and that's why this is really sticking out to me as something that's important. And like when we look at thematic units, I don't think it's like a new idea. I think this is something that's been going on in teaching forever. You know, I know in, at an elementary levels, I, I believe thematic units are big into, into how educators teach their students. Am, yes. I, am I correct with that, Stacey? Yes. And it's, I, I think it's big because I, my sister and I were talking about this today. She teaches first grade and she said her whole schedule has changed this year and she had a whole like extra period added to her day, which means they've shortened other things. And when you do stuff like that, that's when thematic teaching becomes important in an elementary classroom because I I mean, I know the advice I always got was that like reading, writing, math were totally it, but you are also supposed to teach science and social studies. So then that becomes part of the content that you teach and use when you're teaching um, the reading and writing, especially, right? Because you can read about science, you can read about social studies. And so then it does become thematic. And when I taught preschool, I mean, that is exactly how we taught. Everything was thematic. So like a current theme would be fall, right? And so we're looking at like different things in fall. So yeah, it's a big elementary thing. It's especially a big early childhood thing. But I, I, I see this as being completely different. I mean, I never did project-based learning. Um, so talk to me about how that fits into the actual teaching and learning that happens in the classroom. Why project-based learning? The reason I went with a project-based approach to this whole thing was I, I see projects and research and creation as something that really gives the students the opportunity to take ownership of their learning. And I think prior to this, really anywhere you go, students never really have a lot of say in what goes on. Yet when we get observed, whether it's Danielson or Marzano, pick your model, really to be distinguished or, you know, the that high ranking or that high rating as an educator. The four. The four where, okay, <laughs> to get the four, you have to basically, and, and I say this sort of jokingly, but some people are going to be like, yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. You know, to get a four. You have to not be in the room. Your kids still have to show up and your kids have to teach themselves and want to do it. It's all self-student based. Right. It's all student based. And I think projects 
and problem-based learning give you as the teacher the opportunity to give your kids that opportunity. So, you know, you know, last year there was not a lot of lecture for me. I would use maybe the first or two days of the month to kind of lecture on the theme, talk about the theme, give examples, you know, give them some resources to kind of explore the theme a little bit. And then they would conduct a lot of research each month and over the course of the year and complete these assignments and make presentations of, of different styles and use different platforms and, and different technologies. So it gave them the opportunity that put them far ahead of other kids in my school in the ninth grade who were taking notes and taking tests and doing homework. You know, I not because of anybody who told me not to give homework to students, but I just made that decision because based on my population, you know, homework doesn't get done. So why cause myself aggravation, put them in a hole and give them the opportunity to struggle when I could just take that out of the equation, not give homework and utilize for me the 80 minute block of time that I have to do things in class. Now, let me say when a student asked, Hey, Mr. Nessie, can I work on this at home? Absolutely. But there was never a day in the school year where it was all right, boys and girls tonight, you have to go home and read this section of the textbook and answer questions one through four at the end of the section and submit them on Google Classroom. That never happened. The next time I take my textbooks out will be the first time I take my textbooks out. I didn't even take a classroom set this year. You know, so I've moved totally away from that aspect. So there's also a lot of teaching on my end on how to conduct research. Thank you, Caitlin, also a librarian who makes sure that I do that. <laughs> um, so it's, you know, conducting research, you know, and I, and I, Forget where I, I was listening to a podcast where they talked about, you know, what are the verbs of your classroom? I actually, I think this was my own show where I talked to uh, Robert, Dr. Robert Dillon, where, you know, kids should be aware of what the verbs are in your classroom. So for me, my verbs are create, communicate and collaborate, which to me are the three big skills that people need to have, not just students. People need to be able to do those things in most jobs or areas of life where you're going to get into. I think the other thing would be critical thinking. So I'm asking my students to think, create, and do, and communicate with other people. So I don't care where you go, what you do, you know, you're going to use those skills in my classroom. And then history is just how I'm going to teach you to use those skills and develop those skills and develop those muscles and things that you can do better. You know, we're here still relatively at the beginning of the school year. And my kids' first presentation were Adobe Spark videos that stunk. We didn't put a time requirement on them, but we had kids make videos in groups where they had three 80-minute blocks, 240 minutes, and they produced a video that was like 20 seconds. But it was the beginning. It was brand new. So now we have this great opportunity to coach these students and our kids how to be better presenters. And yeah, you spent a whole block doing research, but now we can work the next time around. How can we really utilize that research and that time we spent and really find meaning in what we read and learned about, whether it's articles or videos or, you know, primary source documents, it doesn't matter. No, and Chris, I'm with you completely. Cause when we talk about, you mentioned the, the, the big C's, you know, that's my classroom too. We didn't plan this at all, but like you said, you hit everything right on the nose. And if you're a social studies teacher out there, or even a teacher in general, I think that's what we're focusing on in our classrooms, communication, collaboration, critical thinking. Those, those three are definite, definite C's that we have to have in our classroom. Um, if you're not, if you're not doing that, then what are we doing for our kids? We're just sitting there lecturing them and telling them, here's the information you need to know, go get it. You know, I think the problem-based learning and project-based learning, whatever way you're going to go, and it is two different things. So problem-based and project-based, whatever, whichever way you're going to go in your classroom, it brings that learning to life for students. And that's why I'm focusing on the PBL aspect of my classroom. So I'm going to combine both the project and the problem, because I'm looking at essential questions and I want my kids to figure out and think critically about, you know, three questions a, a week or three questions a month. Again, something I'm researching to figure out what I want to do, but that's how they're going to understand. This is what I need to figure out by X amount of time. So hopefully this will bring my students uh, a little more excitement. Hopefully it'll bring them to a place where they're actually enjoying social studies and where they're creating and doing the things they want to. I can then, you know, include personalized learning with different choice boards for them. So they're answering the questions in different ways. So I'm going to try to bring in like a, a lot of 
bells and whistles, I guess, if you're thinking about it that way. But hopefully in the end, it's going to be a good product that will be more successful next year as I do it for a longer period of time. I love it. And AJ, that kind of leads me to, um, like you said, student enjoyment and, you know, what you plan on bringing into the classroom. And I think student enjoyment kind of leads me to my next question. So how has thematic teaching, Chris, enhanced your students' learning? I think the area where my students have felt the most impact and really benefited from it is, and this is really specific to to my population and the students that I work with. Kids don't cut my class where other classes and even kids that I've worked with even last year, they had issues cutting other classes where again, we had students who made the conscious decision and felt that either roaming the halls or hiding in the bathroom was better than going to the class that they were supposed to be in at that particular time. I didn't write any kids up last year for cutting. You know, I worked with 147 students last year. 11 did not pass for the year, which percentage-wise, if it's a contest, I won for the year amongst the world history teachers in my school. You know, I didn't have a majority of my kids getting caught in the world history loop where, again, last year, if you guys remember, and, and the listener, I taught a section that was entirely repeaters where a percentage of the kids repeating last year were not repeating for the first time, but repeating for the second and a handful for the third time. Maybe they just really like world history. They do not just yeah, really like I don't, world I don't history. Think it's you. I really don't think it's you. I totally think it's the fact that it's world history. Like, come on, man. It I mean, is really tough. That's, that's like a real ego trip you're, you're working with here. I don't understand uh-huh, what you're just, saying. We jest. We're totally joking. Just, just bringing some life to the party here, man. Sorry. <laughs> no, I think like that's pretty fantastic. I mean, I know your student population and anyone who works in a city with the population that you work with, where you have a lot of free and reduced lunch. Um, do you have a big? Do you have a significant transient population? Uh, that would be the word I would use to describe it overall. Yeah. So, I mean, you have. You have some kids who come in with a lot of baggage and anyone who's repeating any class for the third time is clearly not taking school too seriously. But to say that you out of 140 Even if you take the repeaters out of it, take take the repeating out of it. Just the fact that a lot of times when I bring up assignments and the idea of doing things at home, a lot of times I need to even mention and and even say, you know, you know, if you don't have a computer at home and, and I have plenty of kids who don't have technology at home. I need to remind them, hey, the school library is open before school and after school, Monday through Thursday. You know, you can go to the public library and use the facilities there. You know, even just recently doing our first DBQ of the year, I had students who came up to me and said, you know, I'm not going to be able to turn in a Google Classroom because I don't have a computer and I, and I know I can't get to the library. I said, OK, then I won't hold you to the same deadline, but you've got your documents in hand because I gave them a physical copy. You know, it's more than acceptable to write handwrite your response. I said, just don't hand me something that looks like you used a pencil between your toes to write it. Cause if I can't read it, I'm not going to read it. See, and Chris, that takes us back to the last episode where we talked about the human element and just the fact that, you know, I don't know that a lot of teachers take the time out to remind kids of the resources that they have at hand, that your school library is open before and after school, that they have public libraries that they can gain access to, or that, Hey, I'm going to go analog and give you this hard copy. Or, or I, I've even gone so far as to say on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I'm here after school till about four o'clock. So you can right. come and use the Chromebook in the classroom or sit out in the hallway. You don't have to hang out with me for two hours and then you can get on the activity late bus at four o'clock. Nice. Or come during lunch or my in-class support teacher, he, he's there basically five days a week till three thirty, four o'clock. So even kids who don't have him, they can come and in and still use the room and use the tools. Right. And I think that, you know, that that human element also might be why your kids aren't cutting. Just saying 147 kids, only 11 didn't pass. None of them cut. I think your numbers are good. And I think that your teaching is proving itself to be effective. So I will go with that as like a significant change in the way students are learning. Have they given you any feedback? They being who? Your students. 
I've had students who said that they love coming to the class. Um, I never took the time last year to actually solicit, you know, like a Google form to like ask for feedback. Um, I, I knew that it was positive because they stopped saying, oh, we have to do another presentation as we went through the year that either either they liked it or they just realized this is what we do in Mr. Nessie's classroom. You know, it's projects, it's presentations, it's research. So, and, and maybe they just liked it because most days when you come to my class, I'm not all up in your face. It's more like an open workspace where you come, you get your Chromebook, you know, we, we do, you work with your group or I'm doing small group instruction. We're utilizing the classroom. We're utilizing the pod space out in the hallways and there's not a lot of pressure yet. My expectations are extremely high. I encourage you, Chris, to actually at the end of each theme, solicit feedback or at the end of each project or problem-based thing that you're doing, solicit feedback from your kids. See what they want to do differently. I think, and, and again, it gives your kids some um, ownership in their own learning. And that's really the last piece that I need to add in is find other ways to give the kids even more ownership. So like now I've got the flexible seating that, that I've put in place with these rolly chairs and some comfy chairs. Um, Luke even took some time after the first project to meet with kids to like get get what you're saying. So it's something that I need to continually add in and ask questions and continue to make my kids a part of the process. So I got one more thing I want to ask, and I'm this is uh, one thing I know everybody's wondering. What about grades for your projects? Do you have rubrics that you set up? Do you have uh, like is there, is there a checklist that you give them? What do you do about grades? How heavy are grades in your classroom? The way grading looks, it's it's rubric based. So. Where Use I the could, same rubric for the project? Uh, it, it depends. So once I integrated Adobe Spark, whenever they did Adobe Spark, I had a rubric for Adobe Spark. Um, so when I first started, you know, they, they didn't have to do their voice or, you know, music. But then I added those things to the rubric as that became an option. Uh, when they, depending on the project, some rubrics still fit. You know, when we do DBQs, it's always the same rubric for a DBQ to analyze the documents and then the same rubric we use to grade their essays. Um, obviously now that I've gone through it once I've got those rubrics created. So I guess to answer your question, the first time we went through, it was creating a lot of things quote unquote from scratch. Cause we were, these projects were brand new. We had never had these projects before. So we had to come up with a rubric to fit it. But I'd say now going forward, we've got a little repository of things we could pull from. So it's it's all rubric based, and when we give them projects, you know, giving them uh, like a checklist or an outline, like at the end. And this came more me and my in class support teacher learning about how freshmen don't know how to manage their time and can look busy for eighty minutes but not do anything. So when we would give them a project, we'd say, you know, here's what we're doing today. Here's what you need to have done by today, and me or Mr. So and So need to sign off and see what you did today, and that would be like a check, check plus, check minus classwork grade. But then the rubrics were, you know, sometimes it was, you know, 40 points, 50 points, or we would, you know, you know, double the grade or triple the grade, depending on what the assignment was, or just to try and make the grades numerically more significant. I like that. I like giving kids, especially because you're right. I think that kids, adults even, don't know how to chunk long-term assignments well. So giving them small benchmarks for the day kind of leads them to the path towards success. And, and those benchmarks will change because there are things that like we could sit there and say, yeah, they should have no problem doing this in 80 minutes. And it took them a block and a half or right. it took them it two can, blocks. It, it, it depends. And they can be different for, you know, different groups or different kids or different individuals. So that's something to think about. I have a question about rubrics. Did you um, solicit feedback or um, any kind of ideas from your from your students about what their rubric should look like. We did not start with that, but then to land, go to the land of fours and distinguished, we around December and then through the end of the year, there would always be an element of the rubric or two where they got to decide how they would be assessed. So there were some things that we put in, like this is a, this is a, a category on the rubric 
these are the expectations to get the, you know, the five, four, three, two, one or the four, three, two, one, whatever the case may be. And then we would say, you could choose two additional categories or here are some options. We, we, we had to start like in December and January teaching them how to do that. So we said, you know, here's a list of things you could include in the rubric and then you could go out and search. What are the criteria to hit these things to get to four, three, two, one. And then I'd say March, April, May, you know, in, in, in that point it was, all right, here's half the rubric is blank. You guys have to fill that in. Like, here's what you need to accomplish on day one, complete the rubric. And then we can move into doing the project, but you have to decide how are we going to get assessed? What has feedback been from admin? I asked you about feedback from students. What's it been like from your admin? How do, how are they feeling about your um, thematic teaching? Admin hate me. Why? I have older school admin who taught history one way and believe that history should still be linear and, you know, focus on the content. And, you know, Mr. Nessie, you're not teaching a technology class. And for me, it's not about the history. I'm using history as the vehicle to teach, create, collaborate, think critically. I've gotten pushback. Thankfully, I have this little thing attached to the end of my name. It's called tenure. So they can do things to potentially make my life miserable. But I've already worked in ISS. There's not much you can do to make my life miserable. So I do get pushback on do more with the content. It's not a tech class, but I'm making it skills based. It's project based. And, you know, there was a point last year where my supervisor said to me, if we gave your kids a final exam in world history, would they pass? I said, no. I said, because you'd give them a multiple choice test about world history. But if you ask my kids to do some research and create and present, they would do better than anybody in this building. And apply critical thinking, right? And apply critical thinking. Anyone can Google the facts. Yeah. You don't need to know all the presidents in order. You don't need to know all of the dates when certain, you know, um, certain wars started or even. I see what you're saying. And, and, And I will kind of put an exclamation point on this by saying you should not be testing your kids by asking them the questions that they can Google or ask the lady in the tube or do a quick search. If those are the kinds of questions you're asking, you're not doing your job. That sounds like your admin doesn't agree. So, I mean, I like that you're getting around it. I challenge other teachers who might not necessarily have tenure attached to their name or um, who live in states where tenure is not even a thing to at least build those relationships with your admin and advocate for your students learning because it is about the critical thinking and the collaboration and the communication and being able to do research and vet your sources and then apply that and synthesize the learning and put it all together into one cohesive thing because that's what it's what like the world is all about you know just kind of taking all of the information all of the ideas unwrapping it and repackaging it in your own framework and yeah sounds like you're really accomplishing that and and not for nothing in the grand scheme of things i'll even ask the both of you how much can you tell me about world history your faces say it all. You, you're not. There might be a little nugget you remember from from world history. You know, you could probably tell me something about the Greeks or you could tell me a little something about South American culture or, you know, World War One from a you know European perspective. But social studies is about making better citizens. And we're going to do that by getting them to think critically, create, collaborate, communicate. So much of what is wrong with the world today is we got communication problems. We're not going to go too far into that part of, you know, life in the world today. But if we as teachers can instill these better skills and approaches and a better way to form their own perspective, we got a shot at really changing things. So then I think then, Chris, the last thing we have to do to wrap this up is just besides the big C's, what are your overall goals for students as they leave your class this year? That's it. I want them to create, collaborate, communicate, and think critically. They don't have to tell me, again, it's it's nice that social studies isn't a standardized, tested subject. This would be way, this would be a much different conversation if there were some like, like the regents, like they have in New York. So if there was a major test, this would be a different conversation. I'd be a miserable teacher. That's all I want my kids to be able to do. They never at any point have to tell me anything about world history, but I need them to be able to 
understand these concepts and while not being able to pinpoint specific, you know, facts or trivia, be able to know what happened to people that came before them and to make the connection, which might be a fourth or a fifth C to make the connection between what has happened and their own existence, which I think is the toughest part because, you know, you teach some type of students, AJ, I teach other types of students, two different places, two different socioeconomic statuses. So to have all different kinds of people try to make these connections is I think one of the most challenging things. Um, so that's one thing I wish I could do better, but overall, what what my expectations are, are very simple. Communicate, collaborate, think critically, create. But I also like that fifth C that you added where they're connecting their world to the people that came before them. And I think maybe that even fits under thinking critically because that's where we can really make connections between ourselves and the content. Absolutely. Well, gentlemen, this has been amazing. I really like um, where you guys are headed with this. Chris, I expect um, an update throughout the year. AJ, I can't wait until you start this in January because I think that um, you and your kids are going to have a blast with this. I'm almost wishing that I could be in either of your classrooms just kind of like soaking it all in and seeing it. And I challenge you i like to give out little challenges at the end we got some feedback about that but i like to get i'm challenging you to maybe record some of that um or like little snippets of what that looks like um just so our um listeners get a sense of what that's like for you guys just an idea i'd be up for that and and i'll also say that based on the conversation that aj and i have had in the last couple of months is and aj i'm, I'm gonna speak for you is the way he wants to set it up on a weekly basis. I think once my student teacher is done and I come back in January, I could see myself again. I see my students five times over a two week period. So I think AJ and I are going to continue to talk about uh, scheduling the work, but obviously I think I may want to move to more of a routine and, you know, kind of what are we doing on day one versus what are we doing five days from now or really kind of blocking out and planning that five and 10 day period for my students. And I think AJ and I are going to really put our heads together on that. So maybe we'll revisit this January, February. So what are we listening to guys? Time to talk a little podcasts on podcast PD. Uh, I had a, a long car drive recently and uh, I was, I was stuck. So I was going through my favorite podcasts and and I, and I just, I stumbled across one that I have mentioned before, but one, it's a newer episode. So it's the Focus 3 podcast with uh, Tim and Brian Kite. And I know I mentioned them earlier on. This is all about leadership and, and their experiences. And these guys are supposed to be like, you know, big motivational speakers for businesses, but they've really shifted their focus to, of leadership to coaching, both instructional coaching and actual coaching of sports. And it's been a lot of leadership for schools. So this episode caught my attention and I wanted to listen to it. So I took the time and it was very exciting. And the episode is episode number 40 of the Focus 3 podcast called Four Questions for Leaders. And again, when you think about leadership, it's not just leaders like administrators or business leaders. This is people who are leadership roles in their school, whether it's instructional coach or a team leader or PLC leader or a coach on a field. Um, four questions were, were actually really great things to think about. I'm not going to give too much away, but I'm going to share the four questions that were asked. See if you guys uh, jump on this one. But question number one was what mindset are you bringing? So again, it was for the beginning of the school year. So the first question, what mindset are you bringing? Number two, what is your strategy for creating positive energy? Number three, how strong are the connections you've built? And number four, what is your plan for making a difference? Now, I thought those four questions were great, especially as you start a as you start in a school year. But I, I would really give the podcast a listen if you're interested in your ideas for leadership and getting off on the right foot, whether you're coaching or instructional coaching, or if you're an administrator yourself. Uh, I really love this podcast and, and this and this episode is one of the newer ones. So give it a listen. Very cool. I have another that we've 
you know, listened to before, not, not episode, but podcast that we've talked about numerous times. And that is the 5 a.m. Miracle with Jeff Sanders. And a couple of weeks ago, he released episode 257, which was called How to Launch Your Own Personal Brand Step by Step. And the things that Jeff talked about in this episode were really insightful because one, he's speaking more towards the entrepreneur and the person who's, you know, building their own business or kind of doing that for themselves. And even more than that, just how we as people should be branding ourselves and telling our own stories. So this is something I found super relevant for sharing with my Rutgers students, but super relevant even for not, not to have high school kids listen to this, but to in our high school classrooms and even in middle school speak to digital citizenship and the perception of ourselves that we put out on the internet and ways that we can be responsible, you know, doing that. Uh, the funniest example I could think of, you know, again, I don't care what side of the political fence you fall on, but with our recent Supreme Court justice nomination of Brett Kavanaugh, I read an article last week that a group bought, was able to buy brettkavanaugh.com. And that website is now a website where victims of sexual assault and harassment can go to find resources and help. And it's a positive. He didn't own his own name, literally did not own his own name, did not own his own dot com. So. Go out and buy your domain, people buy your name. You got to own your name. Yeah, right. That's crazy to think about. Somebody else can own your name. Wow. Or own something that you create. Right. We've done that before. Had that problem. So so definitely the episode itself is not geared towards educators, but certainly the message is, you know, what are you putting out in the world? And he even gives some tips and strategies about how you can build on your content and how to have more confidence in what you put out there. So that was really one of the big takeaways, you know, being a podcaster and a content creator, something that I'm always looking to learn more about. So whether you podcast or not, um, you could certainly learn from this episode about how to better tell your own story. Yeah, I agree with you. I thought it was a really great episode. Um, it was definitely one where I felt like there were some really big takeaways. Um, like you said, owning your name, just thinking about what you want your creative avenue to be for him. It's his, it's his podcast for us. It's also our podcast, but we all do other things, but you have that one thing that you're focusing on. Um, so yeah, great episode. So my recommendation is not something that I, I don't think I've not recommended this before. So this might be a repeat, but I'm trying to get back into listening to it and getting my numbers down. Um, Doug and I were out this weekend and he goes, what is that number? That 1600 number. I was like, that's how many podcasts I have to listen to. He said, that's just insane. Cause he knows that I like to not have any chicken pox on my phone. And so it, yeah, that one kind of freaks me out because it's not even a dot. It's just an oval at this point. But, um, so I'm trying to kind of go through some of the things that I have the most podcasts for and what should I read next is one of them. Um, and because I'm listening to a podcast that's just full of book talk and book language and um, book recommendations, I have actually added two more books to my to be read list. And I currently have six audiobooks checked out. So I have at most 20 or so days to read those six books. Many of them have anywhere from 10 to 12 days. Um, So I will be listening to a lot of books and trying to catch up. Um, But it's, I don't know. I really like, what should I read next? The host, um, Ann Bogle, she interviews anyone. You can put yourself on a list. And I've noticed that her more recent episodes are a lot longer. There's a lot more conversation that takes place, but she gets to know the reader a little bit by asking um, about three books that they've loved, a book that they hate and a goal that they have for reading. And then she comes back with three recommendations. And then, um, you know, I just really like it because you kind of get a sense for what books are out there, what books you might've missed, Um, classic literature, nonfiction, self-help, all of them are covered. And I like all of those types of books. So 
yeah, like I said, I am currently, um, yeah, on the hook for six books right now on my overdrive, overdrive podcast, um, overdrive app. And I don't know that I'm going to make it to all of them and not all of them were recommended by her, but the one that I did check out, um, most recently I put myself on the wait list and it came out, um, pretty quickly. It was before the fall and it's a thriller. So I probably won't make it very far, but I'll try. I'll stretch myself. I don't really like thrillers though, but if it's like a psychological thriller, I'm okay. Like a gone girl type thing. But this one, I don't know what kind of thriller it is, but it's kind of interesting. And this is a good time of year for thrillers. Yeah, it is. But that's not what I'm listening to now. Right now I'm listening to the five love languages because I keep hearing about that book as well. So I'm a listening machine in the next few months, weeks, years. You know, you can't have 1600 podcasts to listen to. No, no one person should have that much unlistened to content. 1685. That's my number. All right. So those links will be in the show notes and obviously book titles that Stacy shared will also be there. And uh, very cool. Now let's move on to feedback. You have new messages. We do have new messages. So we got a little bit of feedback, and a lot of this stems from our most recent episode, episode 37, where we talked about humanity and the human element in education. And this first feedback comes from Name Redacted, and this individual said, Hey guys, love the most recent episode of Podcast PD. So much of it resounds with me. I recently moved to school district name redacted and you guys are in Jersey and I'm sure there are at least vaguely familiar with the happenings of, you know, regional school districts. And according to the, our listener, it's been crazy. They've been thinking about this type of thing all year. They go on to talk about how I mentioned me being Chris, the idea that teachers only referring to each other as Mr. or Mrs. And this listener totally is with us on this page because he would love people to call him by his first name, but people don't, they go, you know, Mr. So-and-so. And, and I've even heard some teachers say this where I work, you know, being addressed by just your last name, you know, could come across as, you know, insulting and things like that. Uh, for me, I feel like that's how you ultimately know me as Nessie. So that's kind of what I shoot for. And not everybody can do that right away. Um, but they go on to say that they love our action item at the end of the episode, which was a challenge to go off and do something nice for somebody else and let us know about it because then we'll do something nice for you. And this person appreciates all that we do, that we're an inspiration and they look forward to seeing us in the future if they can. So thank you. Name redacted. You know who you are. Our second bit of feedback comes from Jen Duda, who I think would be totally pleased to hear her name on our podcast. And she is Jen just Duda, Jen Duda, Jen Duda. <laughs> it's like Beetlejuice. Duda, Duda, Duda. Anyway, she says, okay, <laughs> just listen to the latest podcast regarding human element in education. And I thought it was awesome, especially since I learned about Wow in the World from you guys and my students are trying to listen to it. My biological my biological kids love it. They are seven. Anyway, I would like to incorporate a podcast listening writing discussion lesson at the end of each day. I will look at the Scholastic Podcast. Thank you so much for the recommendation. And thank you so much, Jen Duda, for sending us a little bit of feedback. Make sure you connect with Jen on Twitter. She is at Dynamic Duda, D-U-D-A 338. And tell her, that podcast PD sent you her way. So AJ is experiencing technical difficulties right now. So we're just going to go to the best AJ that we can. Oh my goodness. That's so simple. What was the feedback AJ? Oh my goodness. That's so simple. And who sent that in? Oh my goodness. That's so simple. That's it. AJ, are you there? AJ, can you hear us? Hey, how you doing over there? AJ had to step out of the studio for a second, so he's off in parts unknown. So our last bit of feedback comes to us from Tina Monteleone, the great at Tina Monte on Twitter. And she simply let us know that she enjoyed her ride to school with Podcast PD. 
because she enjoyed episode number 37. Thank you so much to all of our listeners for your feedback. Make sure you reach out to us, whether it be Voxer, that's where Jen reached out to us in our Voxer Podcast PD group, um, or it's Twitter, or even you sending us a DM. We love to hear what clicks with you, what makes it all come together, and um, you know we're here for you. So let us know what you're thinking, and if there's anything that we can do for you, we'll do our best to give it a shot. Let me insert a special editor's note. We can't hear AJ. But I will insert AJ saying goodnight. So, we're, Stacey, we're going to pretend he's here, and we will add him in in post-production. I so, can see him. Maybe he'll be able to say goodnight or goodbye. Oh, he's waving. He's All waving. Right. Anyway. People, it's a podcast. They can't see him waving. I hope everyone comes back for another week. We'll catch you in episode 39. And say goodnight, Christopher. Goodnight, Christopher. <laughs> say goodnight, AJ. Goodnight, AJ. Goodnight, podcast, BD. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Podcast PD. For links to all of the resources mentioned in this and every episode, please visit our website, podcastpd.com. You can connect with me on Twitter and Instagram at AJBianco. And I also blog at AJBianco.me. You can connect with me on Twitter. I am Mr. Nessie. And I would love it if you also checked out the House of EdTech podcast over on chrisnessie.com. You can connect with me on Twitter and Instagram at irontech, and I blog at irontech.me. Connect with Podcast PD on Twitter and Instagram at Podcast PD. We would also love to have you as a member of our Facebook community. Go to podcastpd.com slash Facebook to join. You can help us reach more educators like you by telling someone else about the podcast. So share us with a colleague, and if you do it on social media, please make sure to tag us. Podcast PD is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. The Education Podcast Network. Podcast for educators. Podcast by educators. For more great education podcasts, visit edupodcastnetwork.com. Your microphone's muted, dummy. You did not just call him dummy. So much for the human element. Can you please include that in the blooper? Still muted. Hey guys, it's me, AJ. Tina Monteleone sent us on Twitter. <laughs> Coming up on episode 38 of Podcast PD, Chris and AJ are going to talk about a thematic... <laughs> a comedic approach to teaching. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. All right, ready? Three, two...